0: So, man, how do you transition from that to Exodus? But we we can make it happen. Um, uh, We have been working our way through the book of Exodus, if you've been with us, and we come to kind of a big, another sort of watershed moment in the story. As you remember, uh, the people of Israel have been enslaved in Egypt for 400 years. God has graciously rescued them, and now he brings them to the point where uh, they receive the law, the Ten Commandments. And uh, I found this really interesting. I heard this recently. Alec Matir, who is an Old Testament scholar, said this. If you were to go back in time and ask any Israelite after they've left Egypt, who are you? You know, what's your story? Here's basically what they would say. They would say, well, I was once uh, in bondage, in slavery. I took shelter under the blood of the Lamb. I was led out by a mediator. And now I'm wandering through the wilderness on my way to the promised land. And on the way to the promised land, God has given us his law, and he's given us the tabernacle, he's given us his presence, and he will be with us until he leads us home. And he said, you know, that is almost exactly what a Christian would say, almost word for word. That if you were to ask a Christian, you know, theologically speaking, who are you? What's your story? A Christian would say the same thing. I was once in captivity, in bondage. I took shelter under the blood of the Lamb. I was led out by a mediator from death to life. Now I'm wandering through the wilderness on my way to the promised land. I have God's law and God's presence with me until I get there. And what I've been trying to pitch to you every single week if you've been with us is that the story of Exodus is much bigger than just the story of what's going on historically back then. It's the story of the universe. It's every person's story that is in Christ. And so the question that we're asking you each week is what is your story? Is that your story? And how does your story fit with this bigger story? Well, with that in mind, let's draw our attention to this famous passage, Exodus 20, and we'll jump in, starting with verse 1. It says this, "'And God spoke all these words, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or in the earth beneath or in the waters below.' You shall not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day... Is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you nor your son or daughter, nor your male or female servant, nor your animals, nor any foreigner residing in your towns. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, but he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother so that you may live long in the land the Lord your God has given you. You shall not murder you shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male or female servant, his ox or donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. When the people saw the thunder and lightning and heard the trumpet and saw the mountain in smoke, they trembled with fear. They stayed at a distance And said to Moses, speak to us yourself and we will listen. But do not have God speak to us or we will die. And Moses said to the people, do not be afraid. God has come to test you so that the fear of God will be with you to keep you from sinning. The people remained at a distance while Moses approached the thick darkness where God was. This is God's word for us tonight. Let me pray and then we'll consider it together. Father, you have said um, that your law is sweeter than honey and it is more precious than gold. And if we are honest, we do not believe that. So will you change our minds tonight? Will you transform us as we relate to what it even means? I even know how to relate to this, your law. And so will you come and will you be with us? And will you afflict the comfortable and comfort the afflicted? We would pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, One of my favorite new forms of advertising, I'd say new probably within the past 10 years or so, is when you have someone basically in a costume standing beside traffic that's moving, dancing or waving something to try to get your attention. You know, you see this with the um, Chick-fil-A cow a lot. There's, there's a lot of companies that are advertising to do your taxes right now since it's tax season. There's a there's a guy out, out you know, on my way to my house. There's a guy in sort of a um, Statue of Liberty outfit that's always out there dancing, trying to get your attention. And um, I just think it's humorous that there's grown men and women out there in costumes dancing. You know They've got to be boiling hot in those things. But the thing that I think is interesting about those is that even though they catch your attention, it always works. Anytime you drive by them, you're always, at least I am, always startled by why is this person standing beside the street dancing. It always gets your attention, but they're not, in, they're not intending to draw attention solely to themselves, but to direct your attention to somewhere else, as it were. So nobody sees the Chick-fil-A cow and then pulls over and then goes and like, talks to the cow. You, you pull over and go inside and, you know, rock out a spicy chicken sandwich in a shake, right? I mean, am I right or am I right? That's what people do. And so it, these things stand by the side of the road, and they draw your attention to something else. And the reason I'm bringing all this up is because, you know, tonight we're talking about the Ten Commandments. Sort of this, this is the moral law summarized in these ten little nut shells for you. And they're famous. They get a lot of attention. Everybody knows about them, more or less, even though nobody can kind of, my guess, not many people could kind of go through and name all ten, people are at least aware of them. But their whole point is not to just draw your attention to them as an end and of themselves, but rather to point you to something beyond them. And I want to try to show you tonight that I think they point to three different things. The Ten Commandments, the law, it points you to God's heart, It points you to God's grace, and it points you to God's vision. So what I want to do tonight is just sort of walk through these things one at a time. God's grace, sorry, God's, what's the first thing? God's, thank you, God's heart, God's grace, God's vision. And uh, by the way, there's just, man, there's so much meat here. We're really going to, we're not going to dig through it line by line. We're just going to do the 30,000 foot view at it. Okay? So here's the first thing. This, this points you, the law points you to God's heart. Now, if you look at it, the first time you read through it, as I just read through it, there are a lot of you shall nots in there. You shall not murder. You shall not covet. You shall not bear false witness. You shall not commit adultery. And the first time you read it, it kind of sounds like, man, no, 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 no. God's like being this total buzzkill It's like, who's like that strict parent that will not let you use the car and gives you like a nine o'clock curfew, where where the law comes to you and it feels harsh, it feels strict, it feels suffocating. And I think the reason why our first reaction to laws, why we are allergic to them like this, is because we think about freedom in the same way that Queen Elsa thinks about freedom from the movie Frozen. You've seen Frozen, or if you're even remotely aware of that obscure song, uh, "Let It Go." Queen Elsa, who sings that song, has this famous—you know—has a line in it that I think is really interesting. She says, "No, no right, no wrong, no rules for me. I'm free." Let it go. <laughs> right? <laughs> no right, no wrong, no rules for me. I'm free. That's how she thinks about freedom. No, no restrictions. Real freedom is the absence of all rules, the absence of all restrictions. But I want to challenge you to think a little bit differently tonight. I want to challenge you to to really believe that freedom is not the absence of all restrictions. It's the presence of the right restrictions. Real freedom is not the absence of all restrictions. It's the presence of the right restrictions. For example, I have two children. And one of my children, child, one one child that I own, is a three and a half year old uh, little girl. And, and just think about that. What if I put no restrictions on her? I, I just, I never said no to her. I always let her get her way and do whatever she wanted to do. On the surface, you, you would think, man, that dude sounds like a cool dad. He just sort kind of lets his daughter kind of do whatever she wants. That's awesome. But do you know how unbelievably unloving that would be for me to her to give her no restrictions? Do whatever you want. Because here's what she would do. She would eat chocolate for breakfast. She would beat up her little brother. She would speak disrespectfully to me and my wife. She would throw yogurt against the wall. I mean, she'd ransack the house till midnight. And she would lay around and watch Frozen on repeat and never go outside and get any exercise or get any sunlight. It would be incredibly unloving for me to not give her any restrictions. So when I do say no to her, when I do put boundaries in place, restrictions in place, No, you can't beat up your brother. No, you can't have chocolate for breakfast. What does that do? It points you to my heart. It points you to my heart for her, that I love her enough to not let her get her way because I I know that if she were to get her way, she would be miserable. I'm trying to protect her from herself. So what I'm trying to show you is that when it points to my heart, it's not me being the strict, mean, miserly parent that's trying to ruin her life and, and I don't want her to have any fun. I actually want my girl to flourish as a, as a person. I want her to flourish, and I just happen to know a little bit more about what it would look like to flourish than a three and a half year old would, does. And it's the same way with God. When God gives you his law, it points you to his heart because he knows real freedom is not the absence of restrictions. He's willing to say no to you, to give you boundaries. But within those boundaries, that's where real freedom is found because he knows, okay, if you're going to get your way, that's actually a terrible thing for you to always get your way. So he loves you enough to say no to you. He loves you enough to put a law in place so that you'll actually be free. So that's the first thing. The first thing that the law does, the first thing that the Ten Commandments do is that they point you to God's heart. His heart to protect you from destroying yourself and from destroying each other. Secondly, though, the law doesn't just point to his heart, it points to his grace. Now, here's what I mean by that. I didn't include this in your handout because it just would have been way too long. But if you go back into chapter 19, the, the, the chapter right before this, God tells the people of Israel, hey, I'm about to give you the law. And in chapter 19, verse 8, here's what they say. We will do everything the Lord has said. The laws come coming, and they say, sure, yeah, we can, we'll do that. We'll do whatever you say to us. We got this. And then chapter 20 gets here. God gives them the Ten Commandments. And what's their reaction? <laughs> Look at verse 19, or, or verse uh, 18. They shrink back in fear. What's happening? Why, why the change of heart? What happened was they realized their initial statement, we'll do whatever you ask. They realized, man, that's a total sham. I had no idea. They, had no, they, were, they finally got brought into the presence of God's unfiltered holiness. They saw what was required of them, the standards that God put on them, and, and they, they crumbled. In fact, the very next verse, verse 19, they say to Moses, hey, like, can you only speak with us because when God speaks to us, we think we're going to die. Here's what the law does. This is what the law does. One of the chief, job descriptions of the law is to expose you. One of the primary job descriptions of the law is to expose you. When you you see yourself in it, it shows you, man, I'm way more unholy than I thought. Way more unrighteous. Way more hopeless. You're brought to despair. You think you're going to die. It completely undoes you when you see what's actually required from you. Now, uh, this past year, Probably one of the, 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 uh, the, the funniest books that I read is this book that um, I brought with me. It's by this dude named A.J. Jacobs called The Year of Living Biblically. Maybe you've heard about this. It's, uh, it's written by a guy that's not a Christian. He's a secular Jew in uh, New York City. And what he does is he takes a project for a year to try to live out every rule in the Bible as literally as possible. It's incredibly insightful and interesting and hilarious, uh, I, and so I want to read you just a little excerpt. I'm going to take a risk and just read you a little excerpt from it. I, I went back and forth. I was going to read you the excerpt where he stones somebody in Central Park. He stones a Sabbath breaker, and so his whole thing is, you know, the Bible doesn't specify when it says stone Sabbath breakers. It doesn't specify how big of a stone to use. So he uses a pebble, and he drops it on somebody's foot who's breaking the Sabbath, and he says, okay, I've, I've checked that, book, that, that rule off the list. And so but here, I, I want to read you how, this bu- how the book starts. Chapter 1, page 1. Here, here's how this whole thing starts. And, I, and, I'm, and I'm, I'll show you why I'm reading this to you in a second. So story time with Matt here at RUF tonight. Here's what he says. First, first line. It's the first day, and I already feel like the water is three feet over my head. I have chosen September 1st to start my project, and from the moment I wake up, the Bible consumes my life. I can't do anything without fearing I'm breaking a biblical law. Before I so much as inhale or exhale, I have to run through a long mental checklist of rules. And then I stumble. Within a half hour of waking, I check the Amazon.com sales ranking of my last book. How many sins does that comprise? Pride, envy, greed, I can't even count. And I don't do much better on my errand to mailboxes, et cetera. I think that's like our version of Kinko's. I'm just going to say Kinko's from here on out. When I, when I go out. when I do my errand to Kinko's, I want to Xerox a half dozen copies of the Ten Commandments so I can scotch tape them up all over my apartment, figuring it'd be a good memory aid. The Bible says those with good sense are slow to anger. Proverbs 19.11. So when I get there... At the same time as this wiry 40-ish woman, and she practically sprints to the counter to beat me in line, I try not to be annoyed. And when she tails the Xerox employee, the Kinko's employee, to copy something on the one and only functioning Xerox machine, I try to shrug it off. And when she pulls out a stack of pages that looks like the collected works of J.K. Rowling and plucks it on the counter, I say to myself, slow to anger, slow to anger. After which, she asks for some complicated, she asks some complicated question involving paper stock. And I remind myself, remember what happened when the Israelites were waiting for Moses when he was up on the mountaintop for 40 days? They got impatient, they lost faith, they were struck with a plague. Okay, so she pays by check and then asks for a receipt and asks to get the receipt initialed. The Proverbs, which is a collection of wisdom in the Old Testament, say that smiling makes you happy which is actually backed up by psychological studies. So I stand there with a flight attendant-like grin frozen on my face. But inside, I am full of wrath. I don't have time for this. I have a 72-page list of other biblical tasks to do. Now, I could keep going, but the reason I read that is to show you, okay, this dude is like one hour into a year-long project of obeying the law. And what does it already expose about him? He discovers about himself pride, greed, envy, impatience, hatred, anger. And that's the point. That's what the law does. God's law is intended to be like a giant mirror where it exposes you, where you see yourself in it in the way where you see things about yourself that you never knew were there. You see that you're not as good as you think you are. You, you see that you're not as put together as you want everyone else to believe. It exposes you. It reveals what is actually true about you, that all that yuck is un- right underneath the surface. So here's where many of us go wrong then. When the law exposes the yuck in us, what we do is we go right back to the law to be the thing to fix us. And what I mean by that, that this, is when we, this is when we do things like, okay, I'm going to double down my efforts to be better. I'm going to try really harder to, to stop doing that thing that I know is damaging and destructive. I'm going to set alarms so I get up and read the Bible. I'm going to form accountability groups. I'm going to create a list of rules for myself. But you see, what we're doing in that moment is like holding up a handheld mirror, and it shows you dirt on your face. And then you're using that handheld mirror to be the thing that actually tries to wipe the dirt off of your face. And it's ridiculous and it doesn't work. Because what a mirror does, it it points you to something beyond itself. To say, you need something else besides this. And the law functions in the same way. It, It can reveal your sin, but it does not have the power to remove your sin. It can show you what real godliness is, but it alone doesn't have the power to help you become godly. It it points you to your need for something beyond it, something outside of it. So what does it point you to? Well, the Bible tells you, Galatians 3.24 puts it this way, the law was put in charge to lead us to Christ so that we may be justified by faith. And so here's what I mean. The law points you to his grace. It points you to your need for grace. It It points you to your need for Jesus, for your need for a savior. Because if you, if you actually will let yourself be exposed by the mirror of the law, you'll look at it and it will condemn you, it will critique you, it will confront you, and you will really see, man, I am a liar. I am sexually broken. I am arrogant. I do feel entitled. I am faithless. I am fearful. I can't change. I can't fix myself. And what the law does is it basically crushes you, and it deconstructs you to the point of giving up all hope in and of yourself, where you no longer try to fix you. Because you realize even if you tried to fix you, your best efforts to fix you can't fix you because you are the problem. And you also, therefore, can't be the solution. So it points you away from itself to God's grace. It points you to Jesus. Okay, well then, how does Jesus help you? Well, when Jesus was living his life, what did he say in Matthew 5? He said, look, I have not come to abolish the law. I've come to fulfill it. And so with every moment of his life, he perfectly kept the law, always, never compromising at any step, always perfectly keeping God's law in your place. And then at the cross, he's whisked away and, he cr- and he's crushed at the cross as a lawbreaker. He receives the penalty of one who has completely broken the law in your place. And so when you come to Jesus by faith, here's what this means. This is, man, I cannot think of of better news to tell you tonight than this. That what Jesus does with your relationship to the law is he frees you from the condemnation of it. Because he bears the condemnation in your place. And he gives you the credit of his perfect law keeping. And this always really does remind me, I, I think one of the best images of this is found in one of my all-time favorite movies, uh, The Dark Knight. I am going to spoil it for you tonight. So if, if you have not seen it, man, it, it, it came out like six years ago. So shame on you if you haven't seen it. So if, if you still want to see it, spoiler alert coming. But here's, if you remember the basic plot line of the movie, here it is. Um, Gotham City is, is overrun with crime. And Harvey Dent, who's you know this government official... Um, basically kind of does this massive sweep and puts all the bad guys in prison. But the only reason, the only way that they will stay in prison if, is if Harvey Dent is, is the white knight, sort of the public hero. If he stays clean, if he stays good, but he doesn't stay good. He becomes corrupt and kind of transforms into Two-Face. Remember, he's got like half of his face melted away and he kind of goes on this killing spree and so he, he obviously falls. And at the end of the movie... Two-Face and Batman have this confrontation. Fight. Two-Face ends up dying. And right before the police come on the scene, Batman makes the split decision. And so he just starts taking off running. And the police get to the scene, and they see Batman running away, and they send the dogs after him. They start chasing him. And that's actually sort of one of the last moments of the scene is Batman's being chased into the night by the authorities. And there's this kid who's looking on, and he sees what's going on, and the kid says, uh, why are they chasing him? He didn't do anything wrong. And they chase him into the night like a criminal. What's happening? Batman, in that moment, chose to, to take all of the blame for Two-Face's atrocities. Everything that Harvey Dent did bad. Killing everybody. Shooting people up. Batman, in that moment, took the blame on himself and was chased into the night like a criminal. And one of the very last things is you have the Harvey Dent face sort of plastered up all over the city, his face reconstructed, he's sort of standing there, and everybody's honoring his noble death because what is he doing? He's getting all of the credit for Batman's heroic deeds. Everything that Batman did well, Harvey Dent gets all the praise for. Everything that Harvey Dent did terribly, Batman gets all the blame for. And that's what the gospel is. On the cross, Jesus gets all of the blame for your law-breaking. He gets all of the blame. He gets all of the penalty. He gets obliterated. And when you come to him by faith, you get all of the credit for his heroic deeds, his perfect law-keeping, which grants you the rights and the privileges and the entitlement to all the blessings of someone who has perfectly kept the law. Now, Now, let me give you one quick application before we jump to the last thing. Here's why this matters practically. uh, Let me ask you this. When you finally come face to face with your sin, when you see yourself, when your conscience is fractured, when you keep saying, man, I've got these destructive habits, I can't stop and I keep doing it, and you're sort of brought to this place of, ugh. Let me ask you, where do you go? Like, what do you do with that? The law would instruct you and point you to run to Jesus, to flee to him. But I think, I think if we're honest, if you're anything like me, Where we run is not to our savior. We rather we run to shame. And we beat ourselves up. And we wallow in our self-pity. And we just heap condemnation on ourselves, And then we make more resolutions to keep trying harder. Friends, you got to see, that's not Jesus. That's you still trying to fix you with you, but you can't fix you because you are the problem. So when you're brought to that point, The law points you to his grace to find freedom, to find forgiveness, to find cleansing, to find a new lease on life. It points you to his grace. So the law points you to his heart, his heart to protect you, to love you. It points you to his grace to save you, to forgive you. Here's the last thing, and I'll be brief on this. It also points you to his vision. To his vision. Okay, what do I mean by that? Here's what I mean by that. Did you notice how the passage... Begins. If you go back here, look at verse 2. Verse 2 begins this way God says, I'm the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. I'm the Lord that brought you out. I'm the Lord that saves you. He saves them and then He gives them the law. And that order is enormously important. In some ways, I want to say, if you don't hear anything else I say tonight, you have to hear this. The order of those two things is unbelievably important. The story of Exodus does not begin with the law and God coming to them and saying, hey, here's the law, and if you obey this, then I'll bust you out of slavery. It's the other way around. He saves them completely by his grace, and then he gives them the law. Grace, then obedience. Alec Matir, that Old Testament scholar that I mentioned at the beginning, he, here's what he says. I'll, I'll quit this. He reads this. The people were given the law not in order that they may become the redeemed. Rather, it was because they had already been redeemed that they were given the law. The law of God is the way of life he sets before those whom he has saved. And they engage in that way of life as a response of love and gratitude to God, their redeemer. In other words, to boil that down, the law is not a way to life. It is a way of life. And this is what I mean when I say that it points you to God's vision. The law is God's vision for how he intends for redeemed people to live. It is the blueprint for a flourishing, holistic, rich, full life. The law is his vision for that. It points you to that. And, And so here's what the Puritans used to say. The Puritans would say, The law takes you by the hand and leads you to Jesus. And then Jesus takes you by the hand and leads you right back to the law. Not under its condemnation any longer. No guilt in life. You you are freed from the condemnation of the law, and now you can actually begin to obey it purely out of a response of joy and gratitude and worship. Knowing that even when you screw up all over the place, it can't crush you, it can't condemn you, it can't accuse you because you have an advocate in Jesus. And so here's the thing. God's grace actually propels you into a life of obedience, into a life of godliness. And so if you do not find yourself becoming more obedient, growing in godliness, I would dare to say it's because you've missed grace. You know, some people get to school, get to college, and um, go wild, go crazy. And some people do it on the, on the basis of, uh, well, you know, God is gracious, and he'll just forgive me. Kind of, you know, I do the sinning, he does the forgiving, this is a pretty sweet arrangement. And, and if that's what you think, some people would say, you're, you're, uh, you're believing grace too much. You need to tone down the grace thing. But I would actually argue the opposite. I would argue it's not that you believe in grace too much, it's, it's you believe in it too little. It hasn't gotten into your bones yet. Because if it were to get into your bones, it would radically transform your life. Here's what um, Charles Spurgeon said, famous 19th century Baptist preacher. Here's what he says He says, When I thought God was hard, meaning you know, like harsh, strict, or that mean parent, when I thought God was hard, I found it easy to sin. But when I found God so kind, so good, so overflowing with compassion, I smote upon my breast to think that I could ever have rebelled against one who loved me so and sought my good. You See what he's saying? He's saying, look, when you experience God's compassion and kindness and forgiveness and grace, it propels you and energizes you and it motivates you into a life of obedience, where you actually want to conform your life to his law. Because you know that, that you can trust his heart behind it. You, you want to conform your life to his standards because you love him, because you adore him, because you know he is so kind, he's so good. You offer him your obedience as a gift. And so let me try to put everything I've been talking about together in, in one final example, and then I'll end here. Let's just say, for the sake of this stupid example, let's say that you are a Christian. And let's say it's this weekend, and you're hanging out with your friends, and uh, there's a big house party, music's playing, people are doing their thing, and um, you're having a drink, and one drink leads to two drinks, two drinks leads to three, leads to four, five, six, seven, eight. And you wake up the next morning on your friend's couch with Sharpie written all over your face and vomit on your sweater, and... um, mom, Mom's spaghetti, vomit on your sweater already. Um, four of y'all caught that. So, so you wake up the next morning with Sharpie on your face, vomit on your sweater, and uh, your friend tells you when you wake up and kind of come to, and, and you have no memory of this, but your friend tells you, hey, last night you, you hooked up with some random person in the back room. You have no memory of this. Now, the law would look at your behavior that night, and I think very easily it would size up your behavior as sinful, drunkenness, indulgence, sexual immorality, um, using someone for your own gain. So here's the question. Does your behavior that night at all affect your status before God as someone who's forgiven and considered righteous in his sight? Does your behavior affect your status before God as a forgiven child of God? No. Not at all. You are still seen as completely righteous on the basis of what Jesus has done. You are are the apple of his eye. He still treasures you with everything in, in him. He loves you no less because of your behavior. He still wakes up and sings over you. You have not lost anything as far as your relationship with him goes. Your sin does not affect your status with God. However, your sin affects your experience of God. It sears your conscience. You you feel disconnected. He feels distant. You're covered in Sharpie and vomit and guilt, and so you just feel out of sync Because you've stepped outside of God's boundaries for the flourishing life that he intends for you. So when you come to your senses and and you're covered in your shame and you're covered in your vomit and all of that, what do you do? Do you say, I'm never going to drink again. I'm going to go to four worship services this week to make up for that. I'm going to try to become a leader in a ministry so that I can kind of get on the right path and kind of balance the scales. No, you don't do that. That's you just trying to fix you. What you do in that moment is you run to Jesus who loves sinners, who actually loves sinners, even though they're covered in shame and their guilt and their own vomit sometimes. To run to Jesus and to submit yourself to experience his forgiveness once again, to let the warmth of his grace wash over you and to drink deeply from his grace until you begin to be so moved and melted by the fact that he would receive you once again, that you begin to think, Man, why would I ever want to leave a God like this, so good, so life-giving, so nourishing? Why would I ever give this up for a life that is so empty and that is so cheap? And out of gratitude, out of joy, out of worship, you're propelled into a life of obedience, to serve him, to obey him, to take his laws more seriously in your life. Not out of guilt, not out of fear, not out of pride, out of joy, out of gratitude. So, man, it is my prayer that that would be true of me tonight and that that would be true of you. So to that end, let me pray. Father, would it be the case that we would be so melted and so moved by your grace that we would be propelled into a life of obedience, a life of godliness, a life that is pleasing in your sight? Father, free us from our bondage to uh, shame, from our bondage to self-medication, from everything that we want to run to to try to fix us. Father, cut us off at the pass and redirect us into the arms of our Savior, who cleanses us, who forgives us, who, who leads us into the new way of life. And therefore, Father, would your law indeed be as sweet as honey to us, be as precious as gold to us, because you have liberated us from the condemnation of it. and You lead us into the way of life everlasting. We pray all this in Jesus' name.